If I were to ask you guys this morning, how many of you enjoy being embarrassed, raise your hand. I doubt many of your hands would be up in the air, right? Uh, embarrassment or that feeling of shame is something that we try to avoid at all costs, right? We hate when we are the center of attention, especially when it's in a negative light. I, I was just thinking of some hypotheticals. Maybe imagine if you dropped the game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. How embarrassed would you be about something like that, right? That would extend much past the day after the game. You'd feel bad about that for weeks. They'd be showing the highlight of that for years to come, every year come Super Bowl time, right? How embarrassing. I imagine if you made a mistake at work that cost your company thousands of dollars. And every time you had a meeting with your coworkers and you couldn't spend money here, everyone would look at you and they would know, it's because of you. <laughs> uh, you cost us a significant chunk of money. I, I was just thinking back in my own life. Uh, in elementary school, there was a particularly unflattering picture of myself that ended up in the yearbook. Uh, do you think that I cut that thing out and hung it up in my room and proudly showed my grandma and grandpa and my parents when the yearbook was released? No, if I saw anyone coming at me with a yearbook, if that happened, I'd run away. I'd like, I do not want you to point out to me what I already know is embarrassing. As I mentioned, uh, the feelings associated with shame or embarrassment, I have a more serious question for you this morning. Have you ever been ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel? There are some claims that scripture makes that are difficult for people to understand and hard for us to communicate them to others. Here's just a couple, for example. In a, in a world that prides itself on being inclusive, the Bible is not. Right? There are all of these religions that teach that you can get to God by any means necessary it's all kind of different paths leading up the same mountain to God, and yet Christianity stands alone and says, no, there's only one way of salvation. You think that's popular? In a world that is affirming and tells everyone that they are basically good, that they're good people, the Bible says, no, you're not. You're wicked, desperately. It's hard to tell people. In a world, or in an age rather, of computers and science and medicine, when people have problems, we point them back to a person in a book that were around 2,000 years ago. People might think that that's a little archaic. Come on. You ever tell someone that you're a Christian? They kind of smirk at you, raise their eyebrows, ah. They're happy to tell you that religion is nice for simpler people, but they can think for themselves. They don't need God. You ever tell someone you're a Christian or begin to talk about the gospel and they say, oh, so you think that I can't love whoever I want. You're one of those people who thinks 
that you've got it right and everyone else is going to hell. You ever have these interactions with people where you might be tempted to be ashamed or embarrassed about some of the claims of the gospel? We may wonder why that is. I think sometimes we start to just uh, have enough of these experiences and we, over time, determine, you know what? If this is so polarizing, if this is something that just gets this response every single time I bring it up, maybe I should just be quiet about it. Maybe I won't volunteer my faith anymore. I mean, why, why would I put a target on my back and always have Christ on the tip of my tongues when I know this is how people respond? Hopefully our text from Romans today will encourage us to be bold in proclaiming the gospel. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, if you're not there already. Romans chapter 1. Last week, we considered Paul's words to the believers in the Rome from verses 8 to 15, and we noted just two prayer requests that Paul prayed for, these things that he asked without ceasing, the first was that he would have an opportunity to go to Rome and be an encouragement to these believers. He said, I intend to come to Rome and to encourage you in your faith, but it's not a one-way street. I fully anticipate that your faith will mutually encourage me. I would love to go and for this to happen. Second, Paul prayed that he would have a chance to go to Rome so that he could declare the gospel. Notice again verse 14. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks, those who spoke Greek, and to barbarians, those who didn't, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul says, I am ready to preach the gospel to everybody. I challenged us last week that we would uh, mirror this same prayer in our own lives, that we would pray for opportunities to encourage one another, that we would pray for opportunities to share Christ with people. I trust that hopefully during coffee time in a little bit, we'll be able to share answers to those prayer this week. Notice again verse 15. Paul rounds out this section by saying, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And Paul's eagerness here to talk about the gospel is perhaps foreign to some of us, right? We just spent a couple minutes describing about some of the embarrassment or the shame that can sometimes accompany our speaking about the gospel. And to hear Paul say that he is eager to talk about it makes us think, what? What is going on here? How how can Paul say this? Well, let's look at our text this morning, verse 16. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. On the heels of talking about his eagerness to bring the gospel to the Greeks, To the barbarians, to those in Rome, Paul boldly declares in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, is Paul saying this here because his experience is different than ours? 
Has Paul just gone on all of these missionary journeys and every person who's within earshot of his voice just says, wow, this is so amazing, Paul. Thank you for bringing the good news to us. You're awesome. Is that why Paul can say he's not ashamed of the gospel? Because he's had somehow a different reception than we have had when we talk about Christ? Uh, Not at all. In Acts 14, Paul is stoned and left for dead for preaching the gospel. In Acts 16, he's beaten with rods. In Acts 17, he talks about the, uh, how these people are worshiping the unknown God, and he says God has made himself known, and he begins to talk about the gospel, and he mentions the resurrection, and upon mentioning the resurrection, people begin to mock him. The, the, the fact that someone would rise from the dead is ridiculous to some people. In Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and he's preaching the gospel, and the gospel begins to take hold, and people's lives begin to be changed, but his opponents to this message stir up this crowd into almost a riot, and all of these people gather into a theater in Ephesus, and for two hours, these people are chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over again for two hours, chanting that a false god is great. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul actually describes some of the responses that he has received to his preaching of the gospel. Notice, he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul says, when I preach the gospel to Jewish people, it's a stumbling block. When I tell them that the Messiah has already come, and that he didn't come to deliver them from Rome as they had anticipated, but instead he died on a cross like a criminal, no, they can't believe that. When he preaches the gospel to Greeks, the intellectuals of the world, What is their response? They say, you're a fool. This doesn't make any sense. So has Paul had a different experience than us in preaching the gospel? I would think not. In fact, his experience has probably been worse than many of us. I hope none of us have been stoned or beaten or mocked to the extent that Paul has. So how can Paul say that he is not ashamed then? Obviously, His confidence in this message does not hinge on people's reception to it. If he were only bold in the gospel because people always said, wow, this is amazing, no wonder he's not ashamed, but that's not the case. His confidence goes much deeper than people's reception to it. Notice the next phrase in verse 16. He says, for it is the power of God for salvation. Paul knows There is only one message that can truly save people. Mankind has a serious problem, don't we? Our sins against a holy God are deserving of condemnation, of judgment. All of us have sinned, Scripture says. All of us are deserving of this judgment. And people all around the world are aware of this. And so they do things 
to try and build their resume, so to speak, as to why they should be able to stand before God someday. If you ask an unbeliever this, what confidence do you have if you were to stand before God and ask him, and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? Listen to some of the answers they give. They'll say, well, I spend my free time after work volunteering at organizations. I spend weekends at soup kitchens and homeless shelters. I try to do more good that outweighs my bad. I have been baptized. I attend church on occasion. I tithe. I give money to people or charities in need. All of these things basically amount to a belief that they can achieve salvation, we might say, through the power of man. They're relying on their own power to deliver themselves. And so they desperately try to do, 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 so that hopefully someday when they finally die and stand before God, God will look at them and kind of deliberate and, uh, okay, come on in. Doesn't that sound exhausting? To spend every waking moment thinking that you have to save yourself? Doesn't that sound uncertain? Can you imagine getting to your deathbed and really not knowing if you've done enough? How terrifying would that be to pass from this life into the next and not know? What is the scripture's evaluation of man's attempts to earn their own righteousness, to make their own way to God? Can they be good enough? I think you know the answer. Romans 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Galatians 3 reiterates this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God before the law. The Bible is clear. Mankind is unable in and of himself to save himself. Mankind is not righteous. He cannot stand before God on his own merit. Paul knows this. He says, again, there is only one message that has the power of God for salvation. There is only one message that can truly make the blind see, that can truly turn a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. There is one message that can make slaves of sin sons of God. There is one message that has the authority and the power to forgive sins, and that message is the gospel. And it's powerful because of its origin. It is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God at work to draw people to himself, to redeem them, to justify them, preserve them, and walk with them through eternity. That This isn't just a truth that has minimal consequences here. This isn't like someone saying, I think the earth is flat, I think the world is spherical, whatever. There is eternity at stake with this truth here. And Paul says, I am bold 
in my proclamation of it because I know this has the power of God behind it. It's for everybody. Verse 16 goes on to say that it is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everyone needs to hear this and be warned of the truth. Your righteousness cannot save yourself. There is one message that can. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I do want to make one additional note here that the power of God revealed in the gospel is not something that we just have to accept without evidence. I think that the power of God in salvation manifests itself in the fruit of people who are converted. And you can see the change that has taken place in them. I mean, exhibit A is the guy who's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul. Right? I heard one of my seminary professors or a teacher back in school call him the equivalent of a terrorist once, persecuting the church of God, making it his mission to snuff out Christianity. He was in opposition to Christ and his followers. And in an instant, Jesus appears to him and his life is changed. And he goes from being an enemy of God to an ardent follower of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the very message he had spent his whole life trying to snuff out. You cannot explain that apart from something supernatural happening. That is the work of God. Some of you can give personal testimony to the power of God in your own life, especially if you were saved later in life, right? You know what it is, as Ephesians says, to be a slave of your passions and your desires following the way of darkness. But God in his mercy gave you new life in Christ. And in that instant, the things that you so loved that were sinful and worldly, you lost your desire for them. You, you started following Jesus. People who knew you before and after your conversion would come up and say to you, you are not the same person I used to know. What a testimony to the power of God. If you were saved maybe earlier in life and you were like, well, I wasn't totally saved out of a life of just rampant sin, you can still see the power of God in your heart, in your affections, as you love God's word and love God's people, as you are just moved to call God your father, even as Romans 8 says, as you fight sin and uh, do your best to abstain from worldliness. These are evidences of people who have the power of God dwelling inside of them. This one message has something that no other message does. It has the power of God for salvation in it. So what distinguishes the message of the gospel from every other man-made attempt to be right with God? Verse 17 elaborates for us. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Quite simply, where other religions teach that you can be right before God through your own efforts, this verse teaches us that the righteousness we so desperately need comes only through faith. I thought the NIV actually had a really nice way of putting this verse, so I'll throw it on the screen for you. Here it is in the NIV. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by 
faith. So let's unpack this just briefly here, phrase by phrase, and talk through some of the things that this verse is saying. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I alluded to this already today, but this message tells or reveals a different story than any other man-made attempt to get to God. The gospel begins with the basis that mankind is sinful, that we can do nothing on our own to try and get to God. So if we have any hope of righteousness, it's going to have to come from somewhere else. If we're ever going to be right with God, it's not going to be of our own doing. And this is where the work of Jesus comes into play, right? Because Jesus came to earth as a human, lived that righteous life, and thus could have stood before God of his own merit. And yet we know that Jesus is that sacrifice. He is the substitute. Jesus not only died for our sins, but there's a positive element to the gospel as well, in which, yes, Jesus died for our sins, but he also gives us his righteousness. Here's how the scriptures describe what took place here. In 2 Corinthians 5, maybe the premier verse on this idea, we read, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, you see that same phrase, righteousness of God, that is here in our text today. Jesus is that righteousness of God. And this verse is saying that on the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself, and gives us his righteousness. 1 Peter 3.18 says much the same thing, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We are not the righteous in this equation. We are the unrighteous in this verse. Jesus is the righteous, and his work on the cross brings us to God. The, the work of Jesus Christ makes us righteous. And we're anything but righteous, right? This is unbelievable. That we can have the righteousness of the Son of God credited to us? How does that happen? The next phrase in verse 17 reveals it to us. We see that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God that is made possible by the work of Jesus Christ begins and ends with faith. It's not, you get this righteousness if you're a really good person. It's not, you get this righteousness with some faith and a little bit of works tacked in. No, the righteousness of God is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. A familiar verse is helpful here, Ephesians 2 for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This salvation, this deliverance that we so desperately need is the gracious gift of God, and works have nothing to do with it. It's all of faith. You say, okay, what is faith? You've been talking a lot about how we can only have this righteousness of God by faith. What is it? 
Do I just have to say, yes, I, I know these things are true about Jesus? Well, faith is certainly more than a verbal assent to something, right? I mean, James says, even the demons believe true things about God. They're certainly not saved. This faith requires a deeper level, what we would call trust. Oftentimes in scripture, this process of conversion uh, is described as faith and repentance. These things go hand in hand. Repentance is a turning away from a former way of life and a turning to Jesus Christ, trusting that he alone can save you from your sins. It's, it's faith that this person whom you've never seen and never met that lived 2,000 years ago really is who he says he is, that he has the power to forgive you from your sins. It, it, it's a relinquishing of everything else that you have put your faith in to try and earn your right standing with God and to throw yourself wholly on Jesus and his finished work on the cross and say, I trust this. This is all I hope for or hope in is you. That is the faith that this passage of Scripture is talking about. One that perseveres from faith to faith, beginning to end. It, it, it is solely focused on one person, Christ alone. And then verse 17 concludes with this quotation from the Old Testament, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that should look familiar to us because we read that in our scripture reading this morning in Habakkuk chapter 2. And I think one of the really interesting things about this verse and Paul's quotation of it here is that it demonstrates how people were justified even in the Old Testament. This is something that this passage just briefly mentions and something that chapter 4 will really get into. But sometimes we wonder or ask the question, how were people saved in the Old Testament the same way they are now, by faith. In Habakkuk, this was the expectation. You want to come to God, you want to live, the righteous will live by his faith. It's not adherence to the sacrificial system or keeping the law of Moses perfectly. That's impossible. We've seen that. Justification, even in the Old Testament, comes through faith. It's always been the way that people come to God. I came across an article this week that called Romans 1.17 the text that rocked Rome twice. I thought that was kind of an interesting title. The author argues that this verse rocked Rome the first time when Paul wrote it to the Romans, the original audience, and here they are receiving the gospel at the hands of the Apostle Paul. But the second time, and the purpose for which this article was written, that this text rocked Rome was over a thousand years later in the life of Martin Luther. By this time, although Rome had received the true gospel, the Roman Catholic Church, a thousand plus years later, had distorted it and was teaching a salvation that is based on human effort, that you can work your way to God, that you can pay to work to get favor with God. You can do all of these things to be right with God. And Martin Luther is caught up in the middle of this. Look, in, look at uh, his own description 
of how he tried to earn his righteousness before God. Of his own testimony, he says, When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years. With the daily sacrifice, I tortured myself with fastings and vigils and prayers and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. The author went on to describe some of these, what Luther calls rigorous works that he engaged in. It's unbelievable. This guy lived in a, what the author called a cell that was so dark and damp that on one occasion, he almost got frostbite from living in there. He was known to regularly fast uh, beyond a healthy level, so much so that you could see his bones sticking out from underneath his skin. He, He actually passed out, I think, a couple of times just from exhaustion and malnutrition. This is the guy who would flog himself to make payment for his own sins. And then he came to this text, Romans 1, 17. And at first he misunderstood it. He thought that the righteousness of God here was God's righteous wrath that he was pouring out on mankind. But after careful study and deliberation, Martin Luther realized that the righteousness of God here that this text is describing is what you and I know to be the righteousness of Christ that is made possible through faith. And listen to what he says when he realized what this text was actually saying. Luther says, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. How many of you know this feeling? Do you you see how it is exhausting to try and earn your own righteousness? Luther is torturing himself to try and earn favor or righteous standing with God. Isn't Jesus awesome in light of this? To hear him on the cross say, it is finished. The sacrifice is sufficient. You don't have to do anything else. I've done it all. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's awesome that it's not on us to try, and as Luther did, torture ourselves, right? People do this very much same thing today. Different tactics, same thing. I mentioned them earlier today. They volunteer, they work hard, they give to charities, they do all of these things in hope that someday they can stand before God, but there's no certainty in that. Jesus says, I've done it all. Just have faith, trust, believe in me, repent of your former way of life. I've done everything that needs to be done. Listen to the Apostle Paul kind of describe his own uh, experience in seeking out righteousness. He says this in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's Paul saying, listen, if anyone had a right to stand before God according to their own merit, it was me. I was blameless in keeping the law. And yet, I leave that all behind to pursue by faith the righteousness that only comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Here are Luther and the Apostle Paul, maybe by the world's standards, some of the most righteous people who have ever lived, who have done the most to try and stand before God of their own merit, and by their own testimony, they're telling us this morning, it falls woefully short. You cannot be righteous. You need something else. The good news is that Christ was, and that his righteousness can be imputed to us by faith. This is why Jesus is awesome. And I want to circle back around to the big idea that we began this sermon with, asking the question, have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? Are you hesitant to talk about it? You know the looks you get, the way that people think about us. We're archaic. We believe everyone's going to hell, this, that, or the other. Can I remind you this morning that although unsaved people may appear to be confident in their eternal destinies, we've seen from the scriptures today that their confidence is misplaced, that there is only one message that has the power of God to actually save people, and that message is the gospel. And who are we to have the truth the one thing that can save them from eternal condemnation and to be too scared to tell people about it. We all boldly sang this morning about our chains being gone, being set free. We sang loudly about Christ is our living hope. And I'm afraid that we go back out into the world and we whisper, I'm a Christian. That, that same energy and passion that we had talking about Christ, can we not do that outside and help people to see, I don't care what you think of me. These are not my words. This is not my solution. God has revealed himself through his word. Let me introduce you to Christ and show you what he has done. And if they continue to mock at you, as I'm sure some people will, so be it. But you've given them the truth. Uh, even this morning, as I was just reflecting a little bit more on this, I was just comforted by the fact that in John, we have been reading, Jesus has said a handful of times now, no one is coming to me anyway unless the Father draws him. So our proclamation of the gospel is not the end all. 
It's not on us to try and go toe-to-toe intellectually with someone who's smarter than us and convince them of the truths of this book. That that's not our job. We are called to proclaim it, but it is God who does the supernatural work of drawing people to himself, of removing blinders from just eyes that cannot see, of turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. This is God's work. And we are just called to faithfully proclaim it and be bold in it. I also wonder sometimes if our embarrassment or shame to share the gospel stems from a lack of confidence that we possess. We say we believe it, but we're hesitant to share because uh, we're a little bit on the fence ourselves, or we're not assured in our faith. I hope that today's message of just examining this text and being reminded that there is only one way of salvation, that Jesus has done everything, that we can observe the power of the gospel in our own lives, in the life of the Apostle Paul, and the lives of other believers, has encouraged us and reminded us that, yeah, this is the truth. I I can be bold because I've experienced it. I'm not telling someone to believe in something that I don't even believe is true. This has affected my life personally. And it is from the sincerity of our own hearts that we can turn to other people and say, I've tasted that power. I know this peace and this forgiveness. I know Jesus, not just because of these words on a page, but because experientially his spirit lives inside of me. What I am telling you is true from personal experience. Please come to Christ. And so that's our encouragement from these two book, from these two chapters, excuse me, this morning, that Paul, as he has this boldness to share the gospel, would you pray that that would be true of us this week? There are a lot of people around us who are trusting in their good works or some other means to stand before God those don't work. They're in for a rude awakening. No matter how confident they seem now, there's one way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Proclaim it, please. And we're actually going to sing about this in our closing song, The Power of the Cross. Do you believe that there is power in the cross? Please, let me encourage you to sing it out. Let's pray. Lord, as we just examine the book of Romans and consider um, Paul's heart to boldly bring the gospel to the nations, I pray that you would encourage even us, as we have the same gospel, the same message that Paul faithfully proclaimed and changed hearts has changed our hearts. We are no longer slaves to sin trying to figure out everything on our own, but we can confidently look to Christ and say, you've done it all for me. And there are people all around us who do not know this message, and they desperately need to know of what Jesus has done for them. So please, give us boldness as we proclaim it. We know that you draw people. We would love to see fruits of our prayers and of our faithful proclamation. Would you draw people to yourself and save them? Would you remind us again that you do save 
that it's not just us faithful few here that are going about this, but all around the world you are drawing people to yourself and saving them all the time. Would you give us a taste of that here in Drakeit? We would worship you for that and proclaim your goodness and your power in, in turning those who are dead and making them alive and transforming them from slaves to sin to sons of God. Thank you for Christ and his righteousness, apart from which we could never be righteous on our own. It is awesome to think that it is finished. The work is done. We have nothing else to do on our behalf. Uh, thank you so much uh, for just orchestrating this whole plan of salvation, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.